The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here to be with one another, with you. Together, before you, to hear of you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to commune with you in the body. Thank you for your church. Thank you for what you're doing here, for how you've been at work. Thank you for your promise to be with us now to teach, and I pray that you would open up this passage in front of us and that you would push something from these words into the hearts of us, your people here, that would grow us up and would make us more like what you intend for us to be. A people growing up, built, built on a firm foundation, start, starting there, but growing up every day, growing up and maturing. Help us, Lord, with that this morning. Make this passage clear. Open it up in front of us. Teach. So towards that end, Spirit of God, would you have your way here in this room in our midst? Would you clear our minds from all distractions? Would you clear my mind and the minds of everyone here listening? Would you help us to to focus, to, to hear you? But then would you teach, Spirit? Lift up the sun in our eyes to the glory of the Father. That's our prayer. Mature your church, Lord. Thank you. Amen. It's often very important to know who is in charge, to know who has authority in a situation to grant requests, make a change, to to do something that is legitimate and therefore lasts. That was the subject we considered two weeks ago when we were last in Matthew chapter 8, the question of authority as seen in Jesus. Having concluded the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, We saw in it all kinds of astonishing teaching and and demands and claims from Jesus. As we work through that, his listeners there originally and and us, his readers now today, we, we kind of see all that and a question that very naturally arises in us is, can he say that really? I mean, can he really say that? Wow. And then Matthew, right on the heels of that, Matthew then follows directly by by lining up a collection of stories here gathered together so as to answer that question for us, yes, he can watch. Story after story then in Matthew chapters 8 and then in chapter 9, arranged not according to chronological order, but, but stitched together, linked by different words and different themes, all together showing us the authority of Jesus. First seen in the cleansing of leprosy. We saw this two weeks ago in verses 1 to 4. Leprosy was an awful affliction. Terrible because of what it physically did to a body, but also because of what it did spiritually and socially. It left a person spiritually unclean and therefore alienated from God, unable to commune with God, and unable to commune with other people. Cut off. It was a living death. Life under curse. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched the leper who came to him and made him clean, cleansed him, brought him back. 
back to God, back into the community, back into people. He cleansed him and rescued him and made him whole and new again. It was power and mercy, amazing. And we see it all there very clearly. We see it there. People around him would have seen it. People in his hometown would have seen it. It's clear. But what do you do with that? What do you, what do, you do with it, with this Jesus and that's what brings us to our passage today, verses 5 to 17. Still working on the theme of authority, but, but kind of expanding it. We don't, most of us here, seeing this, hearing this, most of us don't doubt Jesus' authority, at least up here. We don't, we don't doubt it. But do we depend on it? Do we trust it with deep, humble faith? Dependent faith. That's the only way to be healed. It's the only way to actually find life. It's one thing to know about it. It's another thing to depend on it, to trust it. And that's what we're going to be considering today in this passage in Matthew chapter 8. So let me read it. It's, it's length. There's a lot of words here. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll draw it from it. Two observations. This is Matthew 8, beginning in verse 5, going down through verse 17. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening as they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew 8. It's two observations, and here's the first. Jesus is the one with authority to take away all our afflictions. Jesus is the one with authority to take away all our afflictions. Verse 5, we get the setup, a centurion coming forward to make an appeal to Jesus. Now, this story is, is also in Luke's gospel. We get more details there. And if we were to look there, we'd realize that actually he's making his appeal, the centurion's making his appeal through intermediaries. He's not personally himself coming to Jesus. That's, that's clear in Luke. But Matthew, as all the gospel writers do, and as we all do, He's telling the story in a certain way, leaving out certain details, emphasizing certain things, so as to make clear 
what God has inspired Matthew to emphasize. We always tell stories with a certain emphasis. He's left that out so as to present it, to make the issue clear, Gentile centurion talking to Jewish Jesus. He makes that confrontation front and center clear. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army, roughly equivalent to a captain in the American military today. And because there, there weren't any Roman legions in the area at the time, there were just what were called auxiliary legions made up of, of allied tribes and peoples, it's most likely this man is not racially himself a Roman man, but he's clearly a Roman military officer. He's, he's in the Roman army, and he's part of the oppressing, conquering Roman government. He's a Gentile, not Jewish. And remarkably, he makes an appeal to this Jewish teacher, and doubly remarkably, he calls Jesus Lord repeatedly in this passage. Now, we've said this before. In some sense, Lord is possibly just a way of addressing somebody with respect, like saying, Sir. It's possible that, I mean, we're still close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus made a big deal out of Lord, Lord. So he, he might mean more than that, but let's suppose he just means sir. That itself is still remarkable. This is a Roman military officer talking to a poor, apparently homeless, itinerant preacher from the conquered people who has no societal rank. He's a nobody in Israel, this Jesus guy. A Roman military officer calls this guy, Sir, Lord. That's really odd, right from the start. But it takes another twist, as in verse 7, Jesus replies. Jesus senses a request that's implied in the simple statement of verse 6. I have a servant at home. My servant is at home, paralyzed, terribly afflicted. He's in an awful, awful state. That's the stated problem. And then Jesus replies in verse 7. And most of our English translations, including the one I read, puts it as a statement. But I think actually it's a statement that's really a question. Like I could make the statement, I'm supposed to do it. But if I say, I'm supposed to do it, that's a statement that's really a question. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus actually emphasizes me. I myself coming will heal him? What he's saying to this guy is, you are asking me to come to your house and heal your servant. Really. That's the nature of this exchange here. In verse 8, the centurion replies, oh, no, 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 Lord. Again, Lord, no, Lord. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. When he says not worthy, notice something critical there in the perception that he has of himself. If we were to like just take a snapshot of the, of the, the ladder of power structure here in this, in this land at the time, you'd have itinerant, homeless, poor Jewish teacher and Roman military officer who remember from the Sermon on the Mount can legally require all kinds of stuff of this guy. I can tell you to come to my house. 
I, I can tell you to walk with me a mile or two or three or four if I feel like it. And I can tell you to carry all my stuff on the way to my house. I can tell you. And forget the law. I'm a soldier. I'm the one carrying the sword. But he says, I am unworthy to have you come stand in my living room. That's what humility, that's what poor in spirit and meek looks like. I've got rights that I'm laying aside. I look at myself and I know who I am very clearly and I know who you are really clearly. And I'm unworthy of any kind of a kindness from you. I'm not asking you to come. I'm not asking you to go out of your way. I'm not asking you to, to do any kind of work. I'm just asking you to stand right where you are. It is no effort for you. Stand right where you are and just say the word. You see, I'm in the army. And I get how chain of command works. I swim in the water of authority. I'm, I'm under authority. I've got people who are under me in authority. There's no wrestling match required. There, there's no physical contact or no intimidation to force something. It's just chain of command. It's not complicated. This guy is super simple. It's just chain of command. It's not complicated. And I'm completely sure, sir, that paralysis lies beneath you on the chain of command. It's not beneath all of us. It's not beneath me. I can't speak to it. It's not, nobody here can order it around. But you are in authority over it. Give it an order and it will obey you. That's what he says. The centurion is so humble and so matter-of-fact clear on the authority of Jesus. And the text says that Jesus marveled. That is so rare and so extreme. Now, of course, being fully God, he's not marveling at anything, but he's also fully man. And he says, wow. You've got to be kidding me. Wow. Did you guys hear that to his followers? Did you, did you hear that? What that guy just said. That leads Jesus into a longer statement, which we'll return to shortly. But for now, the point is authority. Just say the word, Lord, and it will be done. In verse 13, Jesus speaks, and it was done. Right at the moment of command. One Gentile, at a distance, sight unseen, healed by simple command. Verse 14, there's more. Peter's mother-in-law, in bed, sick with fever. Picture a person in bed, sick with fever, sweating buckets and freezing cold, shaking perhaps, red, discolored. She looks awful. And he comes and touches her hand, which again, like with the leprosy, would have made Jesus unclean, except that like with the leprosy, it doesn't go that way. It doesn't come from unclean to Jesus. It comes clean from Jesus to her, and he fixes her. He heals her. Healing flows from him to her, and she rose and began to serve him immediately. A sign to everybody present that she's not just feeling a little better. She's absolutely, completely, perfectly fine. Feverish, a mess, sweating buckets, freezing, shaking, Fine. Can I get you a cup of water, Jesus? 
They can't see the centurion's servant at a distance, but they can see her right there, fine. And then here come the crowds. Many people afflicted in all sorts of ways from all sorts of causes. Some oppressed by demons, and he cast out the evil spirits, healing them. Others very sick in other ways. And the language here is interesting. As it is often in the New Testament, the language is interesting. Some afflictions for sure are caused by demons. They have demonic root to them, and some do not. So we need to always keep that in mind. There are some human afflictions, human ailments, human conditions that have some sort of demonic root to them and some that do not. And either way, Jesus casts out the demons and heals just everybody, all who are sick. Not just the sick who were disciples, not just the relatives of his disciples, not those he knew would become disciples, not those who listened to the sales pitch first and then got the goodies afterwards. Everybody indiscriminately he healed all who were sick. A flood of afflicted people all healed. It's the intended summary of this first section of chapter 8. It starts with a leper, cured one, unclean, cleansed. Then it goes with a centurion, a Gentile, and then a feverish woman leading to a large crowd. All show off the authority of Jesus. Authority which verse 17 tells us is pretty important. We saw this pattern, if you were here months ago, when we were in the first part of Matthew, we saw this pattern repeatedly. Matthew did this a lot. Something, some event or some, some circumstance happens that accomplishes something very concrete, very purposeful in time and space, but which more importantly is also saying something. That thing that happened is saying something else as a fulfillment of prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy, designed by God to help us identify who his Savior King was. Who is it? That one. So, so too, with this, all this healing, does it help people? People who are healed, for sure it helps them. Does it show us that he has the authority to say and to teach like he just was in 5, 6, 7? Yes, absolutely. But also, it shows us who God's king is. So we're seeing here power that is not just power displayed so that we would know, hey, I'm strong, so listen to me. But also power that says, I have power because I'm the one. I have power because I'm the one Isaiah 53 was about. This is from Isaiah 53, verse 4. I'm the one Isaiah 53 was about. This all was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, verse 4, he took our illnesses, our sorrows, our griefs, other ways of putting that. He took what hurts. He took what hurts and bore our diseases. That one That healer, that deliverer, he's the Messiah of Isaiah 53. He's the man of sorrows. He's the suffering servant, all from that chapter and the context around it. And all the rest of that chapter of Isaiah 53, immediately, even the very next verse, 
moves to point out he's the one who carries away our sin and bears our condemnation as he goes to the cross and is pierced for our transgressions, is buried and is raised to deliver us from sin. That, that one in Isaiah 53 is this one right here, Jesus. And it moves, Isaiah 53 moves immediately towards atonement for sin and it is right necessary to keep that teaching from Isaiah 53 clear here for us. But in doing that, we also need to note, don't miss what Matthew actually says. Not just what he immediately points to, but what he actually says here is he's the one, this Jesus, this one right here is the one who took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew, at this point right here, wants to remind us, to emphasize for us, he's the suffering servant acquainted with grief and takes not just our sin, for sure that, but also our sorrows. He has power not just to deal with sin, but also to deal with our sorrows, to deal with our suffering, to take away our griefs, those things that grieve us. They're connected, of course. The, the suffering is, is because of the sin, it, because of the sin in the world, because of all that's fallen on us. That's, that's what brings all the affliction. Yeah, for sure. But don't miss the fact that Jesus here is the one who has authority, who has power for the purpose of lifting off of, taking onto himself and carrying for us the stuff that hurts Do you think of him like that? That he wants to carry, that he was sent to take off of us the stuff that hurts. The afflictions and the sorrows and the griefs and the illnesses and the diseases, all of it, whatever it is, bring it all to me. I want to carry it all. That's the work that we're seeing begun here in chapter 8 again and again and again. Is it finished? No, of course it's not finished. But that's his heart. He started it. It's not done yet. And until it is, as it still remains, as it's left to us to experience still some of the sorrows, we have to look at him and see that's his heart, that's what he's about, that's what he's engaged in. And when he leaves it, not yet, if, when he leaves some of that affliction on us, what he says really is... I have an answer for that, and in the meantime, I'm going to walk right alongside of you, and I'm going to bear it with you as I bear you, in fact. There's, in some ways, this can be a little corny, but it's true. We've probably all seen some poster or heard some, some saying about Jesus walked with us in the two footprints in the sand, and then there was, you know, when, during my hard time, there's only one set of footprints. You've heard this one, right? That's corny and true <laughs> and true. We have to walk also during those hard times. But the point that it's getting at is, is connected to this deal right here. I've come to lift off all that stuff. 
It's not done yet. But in the meantime, I promise I'll walk with you and I'll carry you as I carry the afflictions. That's how I'm going to carry them now, by carrying you. He's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the verse right before the one quoted. And he deals with sin. That's the one right after the verse quoted. But in the middle here in verse 4, he says, I take off of you all this yuck. Okay, that, I mean, you know this. It's, it's, it's not new, but it's really hard to remember when you're in the middle of the yuck. It's really hard to remember the doubt that rises is, are you really in charge of this? Are you really the one who can command this? Then why didn't you? Why didn't you? That's hard. It'd be easier to think he wasn't in charge, that he didn't have the authority over it. And some people actually devise theologies that create that sort of world, which is not actually in charge of everything, or doesn't know everything. But he knows it, and he's in charge of it, and he didn't. Why not? Well, I don't want to presume to answer for God. I don't know all the whys. But I do know there are some places in the Bible that give us some partial answers to that. We could imagine, for instance, part of the answer being Lazarus and Mar Martha and Mary. If you'd been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus didn't come on purpose. Why not? Why not? in love and to show the glory of God. There's something that he's doing to show Martha and Mary and Lazarus some new stretch, some new expanse of his glory, which is his love to them. He's not asleep on the job. He's not, not in charge. But he's concerned to show his own glory and to love them with it. Somewhere in there is part of the answer for us when he leaves the afflictions and carries us along with them rather than taking them away. I'm sure there's more to say about that that I don't understand or don't know. But what's clear here, what we have to see and understand, is that he's in charge. The centurion's right. Speak and it's gone. And he's sent to take it all away. And in the meantime, he doesn't take it all, all away immediately. Why? I, I think in part, because he wants to show the glory of God and to love us by expanding our view of him. But I don't know all the answers and I won't try to answer it. He's in charge. He's sent to carry us. He's sent to take away all our afflictions and one day he will. And in the meantime, he says, trust me. Trust me. That's what takes us to the second observation. Humble faith in this Jesus leads to the fullness of kingdom blessing. Humble faith, nothing else. Humble faith in this Jesus, no one else. Humble faith in this Jesus leads to the fullness of kingdom blessing. As we saw in verse 10, when Jesus heard the centurion's comments, he marveled and he said, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He marvels at this man, this Gentile man's profound faith. And just in case somehow we missed it, that's also the final note struck at the end of verse 13. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Same word. That's the point, faith. 
This man knew something of Jesus' authority. He, he, he could look around well and he could see, I know, I know something of who Jesus is. I know something of, of what the situation is with, with him and what, what he's about, what his power is like. He knew it was real. He believed it to be true. And despite the barriers of him being a Gentile and being unworthy, he came to him and asked. He knew Jesus would listen and respond. He knew he was mighty, knew he was merciful, knew he was able, knew he was inclined to act. And he also knew, believed some of the truths about his predicament. He's got a servant at home who is paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Not in a bad way. Flat on his back, unable. He doesn't need a helping hand. He doesn't need a 95% boost. He doesn't need access to the inside track so that he can then do all that he can do. He can't do anything. He is absolutely unable. He needs 100% help. And the only one who can give that, the only one in the chain of command above this, is that Jewish teacher right there, this Jesus. So we put all that together and he came to him and asked. We, we put all that together and what we see is he looks back, he knows something of the history, he looks around at the current circumstances and realizes what is and he realizes what Jesus is capable of doing and what he is inclined to do if asked. And so he says, I'm going to go, Lord, please. That's faith. Taking what is, what is known, and then stepping forward, believing that if I then... That's faith, humble faith, in this Jesus. And it is remarkable faith in and of itself, and doubly so, though, because it's not replicated by those who should have it. The Jewish people themselves, I haven't seen this anywhere, not in anybody at all, says Jesus. This is an important issue that's raised here. As Jesus' extended comments here in verses 11 and 12 make clear, he, he brings up the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven again. And this time, though, he presents it in a way that's a little different than we've heard it so far. He's talked often about the kingdom of heaven, presented it as the kingdom of heaven is yours, speaking to his disciples, is already yours. That's true. But he presents it here in a slightly different way using a very familiar image the image of the final feast at the end. Entrance into heaven itself, we might say, where all the fullness of the kingdom blessings, everything promised to the people of God and experienced in part, is then their experience in full. As, as God's people enter into the great feast at this great feasting table, it's it's presented as if all of God's people somehow were gathered around one ginormous table. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the, the hosts, lead guests. Everybody there seated with them, or as was their custom, reclined on one elbow, all gathered to feast in celebration and in joy with God in heaven. The Old Testament Israelite 
patriarchs are the, the leads there. And this is very familiar language. It's in the Bible. It would have been talked about often in their culture. It's beautiful. Feasts. Feasts themselves are, are times of joy and party and communion and rest and abundance and delight. I mean, every, the good words of our vocabulary are all tied to times of feasting. It's beautiful. You can picture it here with this, this great hall and there's no discord there because God wiped away every curse and it's, it's all lit up. It's just like the perfect party. It's warmed by a great roaring fire and you hear the voice of a, a thousand people in the background and the mirth of music. It's beautiful. Feast. And outside, beyond the closed great wooden doors, picture the feasting hall, the big doors, shut to keep in the joy and to keep out the cold. Outside there's no frolicking and there's no food and there are no friends, there's nothing but darkness. And who's inside with the king and with the fathers? Holy smokes, not the sons. Now, you've read this many times. You've heard this many times. This is not surprising to you. This would have been... What? The sun's traipsed up. My father's hosting a feast. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're hosting feasts. I'm in the right bloodline. That's, that's my... What? No. What do you mean, no? No. That's what I mean. No. And the door closes on the light and on the music and on the food and on the laughter. And what's left outside is just darkness. Nothing. We have Abraham as our father. What are you talking about? Who are you? Go away. Shocking. Jesus says that many from East and West, Gentiles that is, like the centurion here, many Gentiles will come and feast at Abraham's table in the kingdom of God and the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness that is the darkness that is outside. It's a metaphor grasping the picture here of this, of this banquet and this feasting hall. But make no mistake, the metaphor is talking about hell. Because in the darkness outside there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sorrow and despair and deep frustration and anger. For those who trusted in their ethnic bloodlines and their family connections and their performance to make them worthy, and they were not. They presumed they were because they had the right bloodlines and the right family connections and they'd done the right things and they knew the right answers. And Jesus said, no. Why? What, what, what was missing? What was needed? Why is the centurion on the inside and there on the outside? Humble faith in this 
Jesus, period. Period. Now, there's a big theological issue that's opened up here, and I've said a few things about it, but we could go on into many sermons and many books about Gentiles in the family of God as full members, Gentiles as full members of Abraham's family, because bloodlines don't matter. It's the faith of Abraham. And about then the cutting off of many ethnically Jewish people, not all, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus, and Matthew, and all the disciples, and Peter and Paul, all those guys that are all Jewish. So it's not cutting off of all Jewish people, but as all those apostles make clear in book after book in the New Testament, what gets you in to the feast is having the faith of Abraham, not the blood. What gets you in to the kingdom of heaven is having faith in this Jesus, not performing some works or some ritual. There's a lot of big picture theology there about Israel and Gentiles and whatnot, and we're going to skip all that because what's most relevant for us today, the call to each of us for a humble faith like that of the centurion here, a humble faith in this Jesus, the one who is in authority, not just knowledge of him, not just agreement, but faith, centurion-like, clear-minded, rational, humble faith looks at all that is, all that is known, all that's real about my predicament right now, and all that is commanded and promised and says, that is a narrow path. That's a challenging call. But I believe, faith, I believe that's the path that leads to life. That's the path that Jesus is on. The world is over here. The world's calling me and promising me many things. And this is the one that leads to life. I will walk it. That's the life of faith. A faith in the Jesus presented here. This Jesus, not the Jesus of some other religious perspective or the Jesus of our own imaginations, the Jesus of the Bible. The one presented here is having all authority over paralysis and demons and over everything. The one sent to deal with our sorrows and also, as Isaiah 53 points out, the one sent to the cross to deal with our sins, that Jesus. Now, the cross hasn't happened yet, so that's not clear here yet in Matthew, but it's clear in Isaiah 53. And it becomes clear as Matthew's story unfolds. humble faith that is a dependence on, a surrender to this Jesus that says, I'm yours. Not trying to stand on my own works. Not trying to do or to say or to assume because I have a certain family connection. My bloodlines are this or that. I must then be worthy. No one is. No one ever can become worthy. We can't bank on our own performance. We can't bank on our own bloodlines. We can't bank on our family connections. There's, there's a lot of folks who grew up in the church kind of thinking like, well, I guess because I'm, I guess I was, I mean, born in this, I guess that's where I'm headed, right? Humble faith in Jesus, not bloodlines. 
poor in spirit, meekly acknowledging, I am not worthy, but I need you, please. Maybe you're hearing that for the first time. If you're kind of putting that together for the first time, the, the offer is, here's, here's Jesus, he come to save, to heal, to help all who come to him like the centurion did. I understand the facts. I understand who you are and understand who I am. Help. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's it. If you're hearing that for the first time, putting that together for the first time, then here's the offer. Come to Jesus humbly, meekly, in faith. That's how one comes to him for the first time, and then every day thereafter, this is the Christian life walked on day after day after day. The Christian life walked on day after day after day. So Christian, does this describe you? Humble faith in this Jesus. Looking at all the circumstances that are around me, at who Jesus is, at the narrow path, and saying yes. Now this is... I want to be really clear about this. This is super simple, and I think what's, what I love about this passage, it's, it's easy to hear, and I sometimes talk like this, I understand. I sometimes talk like, whew, and that can get confusing because somewhere up in this connection and that connection, and I, I got lost, and so anyway... What I love about this passage, the centurion is super clear. I get authority. I know who you are. Say it. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if if you're a person who gets kind of lost in some of the Oh, the Israel and the Gentile thing, and what about that? And, and oh, how is it that he carries my, my griefs but doesn't actually take them away? What, what about that? There are things to get lost in. Come right back here. And stand in the shoes, the sandals of the centurion. This is the Christian life. I look out at my challenges and circumstances, the afflictions and temptations. I look out at the world and say, oh, in some way or another, oh. Maybe it's alluring, maybe it's frightening, maybe it's threatening. I look out at it and say, oh. And then I look at Jesus and I hear his command and I see his promise. And then I have a decision to make, which is true. The centurion said, I've looked around and I've gathered the evidence and I believe something. Christian. If you're a Christian, you have already looked around and gathered the evidence. You believe something. So the call is, believe it today, right now. Believe it today, again. 
When he lays out in front of you this path that's narrow, say, I see that, I hear that, it's challenging, and here's the narrow path. I believe you walk this path, Jesus, and that you are the king. That's frightening and terrifying and in some ways difficult. Okay. And when you fall down, you repent and stand up, and you ask, seek, knock for help. Help me again, please. Help me again, please. Help me again, please. And you walk another step. And you fall down and you stand up. Help me again, please, asking and seeking and knocking. That's the Christian life. That's the walk of faith. That's looking not back. It's looking forward. At This is the path that leads to life. Help me. It's simple. It's narrow and hard, but it's simple. Look at this one in all authority who cast out demons, who healed leprosy, who healed a Gentile servant from a distance, who, who healed crowds and people and then healed himself from the dead. And believe him. He's come to seek and save and carry and deliver you. Trust him. Let me pray. Lord, help. Please make clear, not just your word, but make clear faith. And strengthen faith in each of us, please. Faith that is simultaneously open-handed and mighty. It's strong. It grasps you. Help us, your people. Grow us up, please. Build your church. We're built on a foundation that is firm and secure, but we must grow. And so help us to grow, please. Build your church. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.